0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash recommend today. Hey everyone, Jeremy Scheinwald here with another Smart People Should Build Things Venture for America podcast. I often joke that I'm a bit of a Luddite that uh, you know, I joined I only joined Twitter a few weeks ago. Maybe I should have joined earlier. Uh, I read the following tweet from, tweet from Stuart Wilson at Prehype. The VFA podcast with Jeremy Scheinwald is one of the best on entrepreneurship. Great interviews. Highly recommend. And I'm not giving you, I'm not reading this tweet to toot our own horn. I, I'm, I'm reading it because I started to check out who wrote it and what Prehype was. And uh, I learned more and we quickly ended up with a guest. And that guest is that, that guest is Henrik Wordlund, our guest today, founder of Prehype and Bark & Co, which is the $80 million VC-backed dog box and dog media conglomerate. Henrik, like me, is an immigrant to this country. He is from Denmark. He started his career in media with the BBC, transitioned to product development with MTV, became an angel investor and an entrepreneur in residence, and ultimately started Prehype, which is a venture venture development firm. My, my, my mind always goes to Venture for America. It is a venture development firm They either incubate ideas of their own or go into large companies and help them become more entrepreneurial and incubate new businesses. Prehype has had many successes. Managed by Q is one of them. Um, there's actually a pretty awesome article in the New York Times Sunday Business section, or sorry, Sunday Magazine, on managed by Managed by Q and how it has done well by paying more for its staff. That's a model that um, I really believe in and, and have adopted from the beginning at my company. Um, but the biggest success uh, for Prehype so far, I would have to imagine, is Bark & Co., where Henrik is an, a very active co-founder. Barkin Co. was founded only a few years ago and now has a whopping $100 million run rate and is growing quickly. We'll get to our interview with Henrik very quickly, but a word about VFA, Venture for America is a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. A little about me, I launched the Mission Driven Group many moons ago. You can check out... Our brands at MissionDrivenGroup.com. And please remember to like our show our show on iTunes. It only takes a second, and it helps us get more listeners. And to subscribe if you haven't subscribed. And you can follow me on Twitter. I've finally figured out just how useful it can be at Jeremy Scheinwald. And now, enough is enough. Enough of me. Here is our interview with Henrik Wordlin.
1: Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast.
0: Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or, even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories.
1: This is Smart People Should Build
0: Things, the Venture for America podcast. Eric, thanks so much for for being here. Let's be here. So, you graduated from and I'm uh, you'll have to help me with the pronunciation is it, is it it's Alberg Universitet? Uh, of, I just think it's just like Alberg University. <laughs> probably where I made a spell
1: <laughs> mistake on the website. Oh, really is that it? I thought that was the
0: Danish for for university. Okay. Uh, in your home country of Denmark and launched your career as a radio producer with the BBC. Is it safe to say that when you became a radio producer of the BBC, you didn't imagine that you'd be, you know, running an 80 million dollar well, the 80 million dollar in VC backing um firm that is, you know, leading that you'd be leading an emerging dog retail and multi media conglomerate.
1: Yeah, I thought I, I wanted to be a CNN correspondent. That was my big dream when uh, when I grew up. Um but I've always really been into computers and so I grew up with my mom and she didn't have a uh, a lot of money, and she worked at the like a, as an historian at a library, and her boss at the time, um, this is like you know like late 70s, that 80s, went to her and said, well, you have to get your son into this computer thing, and so she spent a lot of her money basically buying this kind of monstrum of a computer, and so while well, everybody else got to play football. Um, she was like, you have to play with a computer. And so I've always been super nerdy and got into like FidoNet and Goofer and Veronica and all those kind of very early internet uh, things. And so I've always been intrigued about technology, but more what technology can do to solve problems and how, how it can help people tell stories than necessarily like the technology itself.
0: So that was that was always in the back of your head. You, you, you left the, the BBC, joined... MTV, and I think MTV was actually somewhat of a force at that point already, and uh, and um, and you started working in product development. But I understand there's sort of an interesting story about about how you transitioned to product development, or how you, your career in product development took off, where you kind of took a bit of a personal risk and just. Why don't you share the story, but um, but championed your own idea
1: in a, in a unique way? Yeah, it sounds a little bit more rock and roll when I tell the story than I <laughs> at the time. But um, I was actually just a producer at MTV, um, so um, I I got into to run like a, a TV show, like a, one of these clip and lick shows, which music videos and then a host and then music videos and then. Um, as mentioned, I've always been like really into computers, and, and I was writing my final thesis on my master program, um, and so my bosses thought I was working really late, because I would sit at work and basically write my thesis in the evenings. And one day, the my boss came down and said, hey, uh, you know about this computer thing, like this internet thing to be something that people think going to be big, uh, couldn't we make a show about it? And I kind of pondered a little bit about what that could be. And I came up with this idea that now sounds super trivial, but at the time, I guess, was a little bit new. And the idea was that we could show user-generated content in between the music videos. But the problem by showing, and this is where it gets a little bit nerdy, but the problem by showing uh, user-generated content like webcam requests and and animations and emails on air is that you have basically the host that normally look like this three-dimensional thing, and then you show a website, and it gets this very flat look. Mm. And so it's really difficult to merge those two looks on air. And so the solution I had was to basically uh, take a camera, put it through a computer, make it a little bit of software that basically changed the presenter to look like a flash animation, and then show them on the same screen at the same time. And so the, the presenter looked like an animation and then could talk about these other web elements, and they looked like they were in the same... Um, the same format. Now, the second smart thing about that was because of the whole thing ran through a computer, instead of using seven people to produce a show, we could just have a producer and the presenter. And so you reduce the cost of producing a show quite dramatically. And so I came up with this idea and I thought it was the best thing I've ever come up with. I was like, this is brilliant. Like, you know, please, everybody's thought what they're doing. This is amazing. And I pissed, uh, pitched my uh, my boss and, and he was like, I don't get it. This sounds stupid. And then I got a bit stuck and then I, uh, I went out and like bought the equipment and I got a friend to write some code for me because it was a little bit too detailed to so what I could figure out and then I went into his office and I um, I basically put up while he's out of the office and so he when he sat in his chair he would look at all these monitors he had in front of in front of him and um, and uh, and so we can see it, and so he's like, okay, um, he tried to make a pilot. So I made a pilot. Um, nobody in engineering liked it because they this was like running on a Windows NT machine, right? They were like, we're not going to have the blue screen of death on MTV at this time. MTV Europe uh, transmitted to the whole uh, to the whole whole Europe, right? It wasn't just one one country. And so I thought it was a great idea to show them that it would work, and so I bribed a transmission uh, engineer to go live from my office at 2 in the morning uh, without really getting permission to go live from anybody. But it was a show called Alternative Nation, I think nobody's watching it anyway, so it's going to (laughs) be fine. And uh, one of my friends was a presenter there, and so he basically hosted this show. And so the next day, uh, everybody was like emailing, calling about the show and thought it was super good. But nobody knows what it was and and, uh, the president emailed me and said, Henrik, do you know what's going on? I was like, I don't know anything about it because I was pretty sure I would get fired. And he's like, don't ever do that again, but I want the show on air. (laughs) And so uh, I actually went from a producer there to become kind of running the products team uh, because that I basically took a little bit of a gamble.
0: You mentioned there's a lot of there's a fair some tech speak in there, but <clears throat> or at least or references to a certain um, you know history of tech there. But the blue screen of death is certainly something that I remember from that period. That one I'm like, yeah, I actually do
1: know what that <laughs> what that is. That was terrible. It definitely, like Windows at the time would crash and it would just give you this blue screen it's and it would and and so everybody's really worried that that would happen while we were on air. Um, but we went to the show. It, it ran it it um, it went on for three years and then uh, they basically asked me well that seemed to be a good idea what else can we do and then we came up with a lot of different things like sms to tv and so we started that off and and uh, we did just did a lot of interactive shows in so the back of that did, did that become
0: kind of your uh, you know your your style like let's just let's just do stuff i mean because you know prehype is is um you know all about helping companies become nimble and entrepreneurial and um and we'll get to prehype but like you know, you're your you're at M T V which is you know, you know a huge organization itself and it's part of a massive Viacom empire. Um, how did how did you get that organization to move at your pace? To just keep doing your own thing and, and just hoping people just let you do your own thing?
1: Kind of. I think a lot of people um, think that they basically talk a lot about ideas, but they don't really do them. And and you can actually go get quite far, I think, by actually just doing stuff yourself and finding a way of hacking your organization a little bit. And, and so... I think it's your job, if you want to be an entrepreneur you want to be an innovator, it's kind of your job to kind of take on the emotional risk of of actually producing some of these ideas and make them come to life for people. And often I find that if you make something and it come to life for people, then people get really excited about it. And so my style, I guess, uh, back from then was very much, let's just do stuff, um, and uh, and I think, uh, but I, I think in fairness, like, and there's a Harvard Business Review article about this, and it makes it sound like it was like a super rebel move, and I guess it sounds a little bit like that, but the reality is that MTV at the time was a, was a wild place, and so uh, and so I think I had a little bit of the permission, I had my boss kind of knew that I would do stuff like that, and so <laughs> uh, I, I think it wasn't, like, I don't think that you could do it necessarily today, but I think even today you can... You could definitely find ways of taking your idea and moving a little bit downfield. You can find a way of getting it visualized, or you can do a little pilot, or you can get somebody online to code a little example. And I think when you get away from the idea stage and get into something that's a little bit more solid, then a lot of people tend to kind of get excited about it and then want to help you make it happen.
0: I'm 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 going to jump ahead for a minute here. I I I'm curious now if people know this about you and know know your history at where you are now and are like constantly breaking down your
1: door and being like, "Here, I did this." And you're like, "Well, you can't do this all the time, guys." We definitely have I think I think you know what we do with a lot of our companies and definitely do with Bakken Co. is that we empower people to do stuff themselves. I think this idea that I think you know, there's maybe two lines of thought, thinking around this. I think if you're an Apple, then you probably waited until Steve Jobs sent th- something, and then everybody was kind of doing that. And I think this kind of creation by genius is definitely working if you have a genius on the top. You know, I see often myself a little bit more like a caddy, right? Like I somebody that <laughs> find really good talent and then I kind of give them maybe like the six iron once in a while and saying, you know, probably don't want to use the driver here from the fairway, you probably just want to use the six iron and, and really become a facilitator of talent rather than necessarily try to be the one who dictates how it's done all the time.
0: So Okay, well, we'll take a step back here after that. <laughs> jumping done, around, no, it's, I'm jumping
1: around. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I just got, I
0: get curious about things, and I just jump ahead, and then I lose my train of thought. So, uh, so you spent a few years um, at Juiced as, as as chief creative officer, at which Juice was a, a 50 million dollar Sequoia backed online video startup, and it was the brainchild of two Skype co founders. Um, it seemed to have everything going for it, and uh, I mean, I remember the, the name. I was like, it, "It's
1: amazing how fast the internet moves." Cause I was like, "Yeah, I remember Juiced." Um, it's a Dutch uh, first name, so everybody right. in Holland was like Jost. That's a, like like Peter, and so everybody was very confused about that. <laughs> um, like, what, what were what were your takeaways from the from the Juiced experience? You know what? I think obviously you think a lot about your startups and what worked and what didn't work. I think the the major takeaway for me, I guess, there's two. I guess there's always three. I just don't know what the third one is right now. But this, <laughs> but the first one is, I think our business model at the time just didn't work. We were convinced that we couldn't aggregate enough customers or users that we could make a, a free version that was advertising based. And we definitely got like in the millions of people to use it. I think what Hulu showed us was that you basically, if you have more of a freemium model, and so you have a subscription model that's um, that you can apply, and you can get the unit economics to work, then you have a business that have more sustainability. And so, I guess, uh, maybe it's because I'm from the East Coast or from Europe, but uh, I I definitely believe when we do startups now, a lot of the companies that we've done now, BoxBox or, or Managed by Q and Anco, uh, they have pretty solid business models from day one, and they're not necessarily then as crazy, very revolutionary as some of the stuff you see coming out of the wild Valley, but they're a little bit more sensible. Um, And so I think that's one thing I, I learned from that. The second thing I learned was that we wanted to disrupt the cable industry. We wanted to be a virtual cable operator. And now the reality is that the cable operators, their business model really work. And so they were paying the content providers a lot of money. And so if you want to disrupt a industry, maybe be a little bit careful of having to need some of the players in the existing industry to facilitate you trying to disrupt them. Because while we had really good technology and great team and good backing, then at the end of the day, Comcast or DirecTV or whatever, they would send millions if not hundreds of millions of dollars to the ABCs of the world, and we at that time were not. And so um, marketplaces are tough to disrupt if you need one of the players in them. Um, and I think thirdly, and... and this might sound a little bit weird, but I think there's just a lot of luck in, around in doing startups. We, we all kind of try to extract a lot of information about each startup, like you know what work, and we also do it the other way. When something like Uber, why does that work, and can we do Uber for X? And I think the reality is that timing is such an important component of building successful startups that, um, that that just shouldn't be underestimated. And so that's probably my three takeaways.
0: So you mentioned <coughs> you mentioned timing. So you you when you when you leave Juiced, it like. At least looking at your LinkedIn profile and and stuff like that, it just looks like this. You just have this incredibly prolific period in your life. You're you're smiling like I'm embarrassing you, so I apologize. But but I mean, you were you know you were an entrepreneur in residence at Index Ventures. You you start venture investing yourself. You're advising startups. You launch PreHype within a year. PreHype it's, itself is like I don't know you know exactly what the timeline for all the companies that PreHype spawned was, but it starts to to, to do its work. Like is is it more sensible than it seems from the outside? You know, was it just methodical and things just happened, or was it just truly a period of like really? You know, there are like twelve Henricks running around the world
1: and and they're uh, doing all these different jobs. Yeah, like I think, I think a lot of good stuff that I've done comes from having done a lot of stuff, and so I, I definitely is uh, have always kind of find use in just. Producing like just keep stuff going, coming out all the time, and and I think maybe back to the timing point. Like sometimes you hit the timing right, and, and sometimes you don't. I think I'm I'm very methodical in how I build stuff and how I think about um, creation, um, and so I see myself a little bit as a system thinker around that rather than just here's random stuff. That being said. I think as a lot as a lot of other entrepreneurs, like I kind of wanted to do, I wanted to do some investment and kind of work with startups that I thought was cool. I wanted to really dig into really meaningful problems that big companies had because I thought it was fascinating. They had all these amazing problems, but this really poor methodology for trying to solve it. And I kind of wanted to do my own stuff. And every time I kind of told people that I would do those three things, everybody was like, "Hey, that's totally unorganized. You have to focus on one thing and one thing only." And so my little bit of a stupid trick was like, hey, wait a minute, if I make a company that makes those three things, and say I just focus on the company, then people would pretty much get off my back and say, well, that's very focused, you're just concentrating on pre and so that was a little bit of my scheme uh, of, of basically creating a company that I felt I could be part of for many years because it was doing multiple different things. And I think part of our success in pre up now is that we found that there's a lot of entrepreneurs out that that kind of feel the same. They don't necessarily know what they want to do next. Uh, they probably know they don't want to go into becoming a full-time investor. They probably know they don't want to go back to the corporate landscape. They probably know that they don't want to start from scratch and sit down in a coffee shop. And the sad reality is that there's not that many places that a second-time founder can go if they they don't want to go those three places. And so Prehype is becoming this halfway house for, for all these entrepreneurs who have had some success. Uh, and some of them have exited and made real money and some of them uh, have not, but they kind of have been around been around in the game for a little bit. And so while it looks like we are doing a lot of different things, it's all very structured within the kind of the the methodology that we apply in prehype, But uh, I guess from the outside, it sounds like we're doing a lot of different things.
0: Uh, so maybe you know, maybe just 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 tell us in your words exactly what prehyp is and, and how it operates. I think you could do it better than I did in the intro. So uh, I mean, it, it you know, how 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 does the process of ideation work, and and how does one get drafted into the pre-hype community and the
1: like? Yeah, I think uh, so. At its core, what we do is we kind of build something out of nothing. Like we are kind of creators in that way, and that's what really what drives us. I think we we find people that we really like, and we find problems that we think are really interesting and meaningful, and then we try to see we can wrap technology around around those. And so we have, I guess, two or three business lines that, if you want to kind of structure it like that, the first thing is we partner with big companies that have interesting problems and often have a lot of assets that they don't know what to to do with like they might have distribution power or patents or licenses or really great domain expertise and the whole reason why i started was because i was flying um from london to silicon valley and i was sitting next to a guy from maersk the shipping company and i asked him what's your biggest business problem and he said well i'm shipping a billion dollars worth of empty containers from the u.s back to china every year and the same day i met like these three brilliant stanford grads uh that were building like probably another photo sharing app and i was like this is just crazy like you have these Brilliant people, and they're solving this petty problem. Like, why don't we just try to apply their methodology of figuring out like what could be an easy quick win, and an easy fix, and then kind of vivid work, then build on top of that instead of what we normally do in corporations, where you basically come up with these portal ideas, you build for two years and spend ten million dollars, and by the time you're halfway through, then the world have moved on, and then you're kind of like trying to offload this project to somebody else. And so, if we can apply the methodology of the of the startup world to big problems that corporations have, we could do something meaningful together. Specifically, we can align the incentives and so that we can compensate these entrepreneurs where if they made a huge hit, they would make real money. And if they didn't, then it would be super cheap to try. And so that the big companies would basically be able to reduce the risk of innovation by reducing the cost for unsuccessful projects, but they would be costly, but fairly costly if it was a huge win. So our first business line to do that, we operate in uh, London, Copenhagen, uh, Sydney, and here in New York, where we basically partner with companies like News Corp or Verizon or Mondelez or Danon or Royal Bank of Scotland, Leo Pharma, and, and, and well-known companies. And so that's probably, I think, what we are best known for in the corporate innovation world. Um, then we build our own stuff. And so a lot of us are entrepreneurs at heart. And so sometimes when we've, been exposed to a lot of interesting R&D teams or we build on a corporate project, then we get the itch and we're like, well, it could be fun to do something ourselves again. And so we have this very structured methodology for how we come up with new ideas and then how we test them in markets. And that methodology is a methodology that we use both for what we do with our corporate partners and what we do internally. And so collectively we've probably done just around 30 startups over the last six years uh, using that methodology and then if we see it has traction like box or managed by Q then we double down and we raise venture capital for it or with the corporate partners we then kind of build it into a business line for them um, and if not then we kill it and we start from scratch and so that's the kind of a main thing then we do some investments uh, ourselves uh, we do uh, seed investments um, not necessarily our core business we do it I don't want to belittle it too much, but I see it a little bit as community service. We find in amazing entrepreneurs <clears> that we think have ideas that the world should see, and then we, we throw our checks at them and I hope it works. And then we run the uh, investment uh, process for a number of corporate partners where we identify businesses that could add value to their core business, and the best way to facilitate a relationship is by doing an investment. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play
0: It at play.it. This is smart people should build things.
1: The Venture for America podcast.
0: So I'm curious how how, how you because I mean you're, you're you're involved in the management of, of PreHype and then seemingly very involved in 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 Bark Co itself. How do you how do you how do you determine? Wh- you know, like, how do you determine when you have something that starts like Bark and Co. Like, hey, that's what I'm actually going to do, and I'm going to be involved in day to day versus seemingly like I think managed by Q.
1: Maybe you're a little more hands off than 20. you are with Bark and Co. So, h- how do you make those choices? Yeah, I think my, uh, Barkbox was c- uh, created uh, about four years, four and a half years ago, and. Um, initially, uh, I have two co-founders, Kali and Matt, and I met Matt first, and we were talking about different things, and I kind of wanted to recruit him into the pre world, and so we were brainstorming about different ideas, and, and we came up with this, and I, and I built the first little kind of prototype um, and kind of lured him in, and then we got Kali involved, and then it blew up. Um, and, and so I've always been, at Bach, like the running the creative side of the business, the, the, the new products team, the design, the, the content team. And, and the relationship between the three of us just worked really well. And so we were just creating our methodology at the time. Like Backbox is only a, a year and a half uh, uh, younger than, than Prehype. When uh, Dan and Saman, who did uh, Managed by Q came around and was part of Prehype, they worked on a new school project first. Then our methodology became more structured and we became uh, more like a, a company that uh, a platform that provided kind of tools for for them as entrepreneurs to really go out and and make their magic. And so, I was lucky to serve on the board for the first few years. And, and now that they raised a, a lot of money and really need to understand scale and things that I'm not necessarily very good at, then uh, they're they're running by themselves. So let's let's talk about about Bark, um, Bark and Co, Barkbox. Um,
0: and it's one of the really impressive successes coming out of coming out of pre- coming out of pre hype. Um, it seems like. I I'm I, I've had dogs I've had a dog for for uh for uh, 10 years and I've got, I've, um, in, in in marrying my wife, I, I have an, another dog that I, is a full, you know, dog son of mine as well. And like, I thought I couldn't be any more of an annoying coddling dog parent than I was, but it seems like you guys have hit on this vein of other people that are annoying dog coddling parents like me. And I was kind of shocked to see that there was this much demand out there. Like, was it, was it surprising to you? Were you, were you... Were you overwhelmed by the response? Were you like, no, of course, we, we thought it'd be like this.
1: Totally, I, I think, and since this is a podcast for, for entrepreneurial people, I think sometimes it's good to tell like the, the honest story about mm. how things happen than necessarily like the, the revisioner's history, historical version that normal people do. I think the reality is that we thought it would be a small business. Like Matt has this dog called Hugo, which is this child, and, and I was fostering dogs at the time, but now I have a kept one called uh, Molly. And I think what we were learning was that we just didn't have a cool um, place. There was no cool place where you could find really good products. But in all honesty I thought it would be like a nice side business. I thought we would kind of like it'll be a nice business. We'll run some get some dividends and that that is. I think what we stumbled into was an industry that and just to give you a little bit of exercising, like the there's fifty six million households in the US with the dog and so mm. pretty much every third American owns a dog. And there's been this generational shift of the dog being a pet to become a family extension or part of the family. So most of us see our our dogs as kids in fact I think I read a stat the other day that was something like 56% of people prefer their dog over their partner. <laughs> um, and so I think you have this industry that is four times the size of the baby market. It was twice as quick. It's never seen a recession, but you really hadn't seen any innovation in it for 20, 30 years. And so by applying technology and applying this uh, understanding that people basically saw their dog as part of the family, we were like, hey, wait a minute. if, if BarkBox is growing so quickly and the products that we find and the products we create are so successful. Maybe we can create what I refer to as a full-stack company where we don't see ourselves as merely a box distribution company, but we see ourselves as Bark & Co., like a next-generation Disney for dogs and their people. And so what we should supply is really a lot of experiences that, People could do with their dogs, and that involves events, that involves content, that involves different types of experiences, and and the box itself would be this unboxing experience that you would have your dog every month, and and so <clears throat> I think the we didn't see it uh, necessarily from from day one, but we definitely saw it very quickly because that the the company just grew so quickly and the. And our audience uh, were kind of like, "Hey, there's somebody who is as crazy about dogs as we are, and <laughs> would like to be part of that."
0: Yeah, I mean, can you tell us about, about the the like the growth and the the breaking points? Like, I, I think I remember you saying to me, we talked a little bit before. You, you're saying that you had a ton of subscribers <laughs> before you were even live, just by like word of mouth and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: sure. So, so we had uh, this uh, WordPress uh, site that I kind of made over a weekend, and Matt and I were going around and kind of saying to people, uh, people come like, hey, what are you working on? And I was like, oh, I'm working on this new thing. It's kind of like a box subscription thing for dogs. And people say, hey, that sounds pretty cool. You can just sign me up when you're ready. And I was like, hey, but I have Square on my phone, and they have a credit card, so I can just take your money now. And so the first 74 accounts, some of that, we just basically swiped on our phones. Uh, Matt was definitely better off kind of selling that in person than I was um, and then we're like hey wait a minute now we actually have to send boxes to people and so um, Carly joined and really kind of went down and bought brown boxes on the in the post office and and we We wrote the, we packed the first, I think, the first few months or three months, whatever it was, the first 2,000 boxes we packed ourselves. I don't spill very well, so I wrapped Happy Holidays with two L's in all the boxes. (laughs) And they were like, what have you done? Um, And so uh, we were just very lowbrow with how we were doing it and and was kind of fixing the problems as they were coming rather than what I think a lot of people get very anxious about is like, how do you scale? Um, And so a question we would have a lot was, how are you going to pack the boxes? And we were like, well, we'll do it ourselves. And people are like, that won't scale. And I was going kind to of like, kind of see how that could be a problem. But we only have like a 1,000 subscribers. And every um, once a month, a Thursday, we would have packing day. And so we would have very good cheese and wine. And we'd invite our friends over. <laughs> and then we're like, hey, we're packing boxes. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then it really started to take off for that. And now we have warehouses on East Coast. And, and there's like a professional operation. But we really only started to do that when we needed to have them.
0: Was there a period of time at all when you
1: were turning people away, when you just, you just couldn't meet demand? No, we've never, we'd never done that. Uh, we definitely had a few times where we tried new channels and suddenly they worked. And then we were a little bit scrambling to figure out how the hell we would uh, service them. But we've been fortunate enough with the business model that it's somewhat predictable. Like people sign up for three, six months, a year at a time. And so we often know like month in advance, how many, how many boxes that we need to do. The complexity is now where we have hundreds of SKUs. Uh, and so a lot of people don't know, but we actually have hundreds of boxes that we send out. And so if your dog is small or big or medium, if it's have allergies, if it's what we call a heavy chewer, heavy chore is a dog that's really amazing in, 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 in destroying toys. And so we have all these different SKUs in the back end to really make sure that people get the box that's perfect for their dog.
0: I was watching a, a video of you on I think it was on Inc., um, giving a tour of the of the Bark and Co. or, or barkbox office and um and clearly surprise surprise it's very dog friendly um but i'm curious like you know you don't necessarily need to love dogs to be a very good accountant let's say or something like that i mean is 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 there a prerequisite for 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 uh, for barkbox that uh, that that you need to really love dogs or and, and or is it even exclusionary could you be like look we just found the best darn programmer or whoever it is out there and he's not a dog person he's afraid of dogs and we can't bring him in
1: yeah i think I think really if you want to build a generational brand for an industry, you need authenticity in what you're doing. I think customers are getting incredibly smart and savvy about understanding what is the c- true values that your company have. And especially now when you have so many touch points with the customer through social and through all your products. And so yes, you definitely have to be com- a complete dog not to, to work with us. And I think our customers understand that. And so you see a lot of like jokes like you're mentioning a- accounting right I-, I was in a budget presentation the other day and i saw there was a little asterisk on one of the numbers and it says like please note this is in human years not dog years <laughs> 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 and so uh, and so i think i think we you need to really be able to uh empathize and understand fu- fully the the customers in order to uh, to make a successful company and so uh yeah, we're probably not a good company if you if you don't like dogs. Okay, that's interesting. There's also a lot of them, right? You know, like if you have a hundred million Americans with a dog, right. then chances are that you have an incredible developer. And I think, I think a lot of the the amazing developers we have, for example, they're very passionate about building something that ha- has meaning, right? Where it's not just about creating a, an accountant software; it's about creating amazing moments between dogs and their people. And and I think that for many is a very very good cause.
0: So you guys have, have, have been able to diversify away from just being a box company. Um, there's Bark Post, which is kind of like Dog Media. There's Bark Live, which is events. Um, were these just natural growths, uh, outgrowths of the outgrowths of the business, or is this the pre-hype in you where you're constantly like looking for opportunities to be entrepreneurial, to iterate, um, you know, or I mean, how did that whole how did that whole process work of growing outside of the box business itself?
1: Yeah, we're definitely we're definitely big on. Um, I I think it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, but Matt and Kali, I think, have, have really been pushing me also to take what I learned from other companies and really apply that to the dark world. And so, it's very. Uh, it's very meaningful to sit and spend some 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 time with very smart people in the media industry, and then go back and think about how we can apply that to the doc uh, world. We have an internal uh, pre-hype inspired team called Bog Beta, and so we use the methodology internally to build new uh, products. For example, we just launched last week um, a. Puppy pop-up store uh, where you a uh, no, puppy pop-up pu- store where you um where you could go into the store with your dog and we would put an RFID vest on the dog and then we would have RFID uh, transmitters and all the toys and so it was the first uh, store that it was ever made that was designed for dogs just to run around and shop themselves <laughs> and then their owner would sit with their iPhone and basically or Android and then they'll be able to see basically what are the toys that the dogs like to play the most with and so. Um, if we want to be the Disney for Docs, we have to be able to merge experiences with content and with commas to really make that um, a meaningful kind of like a holistic world that we're creating. And so, it's always been part of the of the of the vision. But I think we definitely had the advantage that we had a bunch of pre high people running around that was very kind of in tune with how do you um, invent and test and launch businesses very quickly.
0: Flair, so you mentioned this, like <clears throat> the the dog running around, like I, I'm I'm imagining myself amused as my bill is increasing, and yet we would do that for our dogs. I wouldn't do that for my children. Like I, I mean, I my my daughter was wandering around pulling stuff off the rack. I'd be like, just put that back.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, I think the reality is that with your dog, there's not that much you can do. You can go to the park and you can hang in the sofa. And so I think what we're creating uh, all these new places that you can go. You know, we have Open Bark Night, which is a stand-up comedy night with your dog. We have, um, we have uh, cooking classes where you <coughs> sorry where you can learn to do treats with your dog. We have Bark Fest, which is this massive Coachella for dogs that we just did here on the West Side Highway and that we're doing in LA in October. And so um, what we're doing is just trying to expand the quality time that you can have with your dog, and, and I think people really like that. You have
0: been growing, and um, <clears throat> the you know you, you recently raised sixty million dollars. I think I, I think we actually chatted a couple days before that. You were in in uh, in Iceland a couple days before uh, before the big raise, and said there was some news coming. Um, and you know, there's a journal article that I read that reported that you know and Coast cash flow positive. Um, like why the big raise and and what is like i'm always curious about the numbers like did you did you say you know hey this is we actually need this dollar value and it's all allocated for something or is just like like what couldn't you have done with 30 million dollars or why not 120 million dollars
1: I think there's two ways to kind of look at being an entrepreneur, and I talk about being either means oriented or goals oriented. I think that most people um, in the early days of entrepreneurship is a little bit means oriented. You kind of ha- take what you have and you make the best out of that. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's really your your skill is that you can get make something out of not a lot. Um, and so I kind of understand the question, like very tactical. You create very fancy big models about what your business is going to look like, and you look at your cash flows, and you look at what are some of the investments things that you would like to do, and then you figure out like what number you want. You you definitely don't want to take too much money because you obviously don't want to sell too much of your company, but you also don't want to make too like take too a uh, little money because suddenly there'll be an opportunity where you have you find a new acquisition channel. Uh, or you find uh, a new business that you think could be a great opportunity, and you want to have the cash at hand to, to do that. And so, um, it's I, I think there is so so there's a little bit brackets. kind of like how much you raise in each round, which I kind of think is a little bit defined about what kind of investors you work with and where you are in your business. Um, and then from there, there's a, a just a very detailed model. We we had Citibank help us create like this. 800 billion sheet business model that I do not understand that Matt and Kali would kind of surf around like it was basically like the matrix source code and then they would go like and here's what we need and and, and so I trust them a lot that they picked the right number
0: it, it sounds like you have a lot of affection for your co-founders why did that why did the why did that relationship
1: work so well it's a good question because I think we are very different like when you meet us like our oh, UI is very uh, very different I think maybe that's one of the reasons why it worked well. We're we're very uh, we're very we have very complementary skills, and then I think we have all the same values. And so, we care a lot about building a company that's built on trust and good people and have a good time, and about building stuff with kind of like a with real fundamentals and build it robust. And 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 so on a on a value base, we're we're very. Uh, aligned, and then they're just good at stuff that I'm very bad at, and so I'm in awe with some of the stuff they do all the time because I like, go like, "Holy shit, I could never have done that." Um, and so I think um, having those things like the very clear values that all very un- shared values, and then have a very good, uh, and then people that do stuff that you don't do very well—that that's good. And then I think we trust each other a lot to get on with what we are each kind of tasked to do, like from a creative point of view they are incredible supportive when i have a crazy idea like we launched the darknell like uh, the donald Trump dog toy, <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, here's a crazy idea!" And they're like, "This is awesome! We should do that, and we should do Hillary kitten also, <laughs> and it's gonna be really cool." And so they they are very very nice to to be supportive in crazy ideas. And then when they come back a few weeks later and show me the numbers of how stuff didn't work at all, then I trust that they were right. And so we go, like, "Okay, that didn't work. So let's come up with something better," and then we do that.
0: I think the pro- <clears throat> the, the process of of. Uh of packing thousands of boxes together has to be, you know, something that bonds you guys really well, I mean, that, that that
1: too. I think they will claim that they did more of the packing, and I probably <laughs> did more of the, the pizza eating and the... And the bad penmanship. Exactly, the bad penmanship and, like, putting on music.
0: <laughs> um, so looking back, I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, sorry, it's four years old
1: now? Yeah, um, four and a half years, yeah.
0: So... You know, everything's roaring along. To use a non-dog metaphor, there with roaring, uh, and you know, is there is there anything you look back and you're like, boy, we should have done that differently, or, or, or we missed that
1: opportunity? You know, what I think a lot about that, and I think it sounds a little bit weird, but I actually don't think that there's a lot that we would have done differently. Like, well, there's tons of stuff we would like. I wish that I could have changed, but if you look at the fundamental, what I've learned with Bakken Co. is that when a business kind of work, it works pretty early and then it kind of just gets this kind of momentum that is very difficult to control and you kind of just have to ride and so it's a little bit like surfing i think like you basically find a really cool wave and you paddle and you paddle and paddle and if you're lucky you get on it but then you're actually on the surfboard and basically you just don't want to fall off and kill yourself and so i think the last four years have been a little bit like being on the surfboard and just making sure that the wave don't come down and crash us um but there isn't kind of like a, a, a big thing like we've done initiatives that I was like oh I wish that I hadn't done that or um, but overall like we're we're kind of been been doing good and there haven't been like one thing where I was like oh I wish that we would do that over. So
0: your co-founder MadMaker talked about about dog parents and I'm curious as as an outsider like me you know are are, are is there anything. Is there anything, do you know, like, can you identify um, geographic differences? You know, are Americans, uh, uh, you know, insane dog parents relative to European countries? Is this somewhat universal? Does everyone basically love their dogs, like, at this level? And I'm also curious if the data would show that, like, there's a state that has... Particular, you know, dog parenting, or 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 restrictive, uh, you know,
1: or or tough love dog parents, or something like that, through purchases. I think I don't think so. I think we we ship to all states. And we're stronger in what we call the smile, which is basically the coast and then down Texas and then up the other coast. Um, but I think that's just because that our acquisition tools have been very geared on kind of. West Coast, East Coast, Facebook kind of acquisition channels, and I think now that we're growing and we're doing more stuff in retail and we're doing more events, I think that that will come away. I actually think one of the unique thing about dog parents, which is kind of cool in today's society, is that it's one of the things that really unite us. I think that if you're a Republican or Democrat or Whatever your religion or sexuality or whatever it is, I think we can all agree that dogs are freaking awesome. And, and I actually think that that's kind of like a, a thing that we're very proud of. Like we we don't have to think about what makes us different. We can think about this one thing that unites us. And and so uh, so we'll hope to make the world a little bit of a better place by really uh, making a, a better company.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I can't tell you how many people I've met through my dogs. I have no idea what their backgrounds are. You're just like the next thing you know that you're their dog or they're petting your dog exactly right
1: it's a great conversation starter, and uh, and so uh, yeah I think I think this could be you know obviously a very big thing I think that when we look back and we would go well why were nobody really going for this massive industry and we hope to be the one that can really unite the community of, of crazy dog people
0: so okay but that that actually leads me to a very obvious question where where is bark and Co going well I think we're
1: going onwards and upwards Um <laughs> We definitely have endless amount of things. <coughs> we definitely have endless amount of things that we want to do. Uh, we, You'll see us do much more content. You'll see us do many more products we have this pretty cool thing that we get uh, we shipped like 25 million products last year and so we get detailed data about each of the product that goes out and so i can tell you what squeakers labradors and texas like and we use this understanding to really build better products and then we use our understanding for content to really create products that are both fun for the owner and the dog and so that we can create more of these joint experiences and so we will do much more of that. You'll see many more products coming out for us, and hopefully, uh, many more good boxes that people really enjoy. You'll see more content coming from us, and you'll see more experiences and events coming from us.
0: So I keep mentioning, you know, us both being immigrants, I'm Canadian, and uh, you know, like I always marvel at how much stronger the entrepreneurial environment is in the states than even Canada, which has you know so many cultural similarities to the states. But you know, do you feel like this is something that? Could you have launched this back home? Do you feel like there's there's an ecosystem that supports these things, you know,
1: relative I, to the states? I come from a country that's 5.5 million people, right? And so that's probably like eight blocks of Manhattan or something like that. And so I think the, the the sheer size, I think I think the sheer size of, of the U.S. Uh, just make it um, a very attractive market to go for. And the U.S. is just an incredible country. You guys have a, an optimism here that I don't think many other countries in the world really share. Like when you talk about a crazy idea of launching a Disney for dogs, then people are like, that's freaking awesome. Like, <laughs> what can I do to help? Where can I sign up? I think people in Europe are a little bit more skeptical, and, and they have um, maybe hundreds of years of more established kind of organizations or companies where they like to work, and it's kind of a little bit more structured. And so... I think it would be tough to launch um, launch bark box outside uh, the U.S. to start with. I think that people love dogs as much as we do over here, and so we definitely could take our products across. Um, but I'm very grateful for having been able to be here and launch it here. I don't know if there's a better place to
0: end than there. <laughs> so, Hendrik, thanks so much for being here and for sharing your story. Thanks for letting me go.